Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, I really only have one announcement for you today, and it is this. Uh, I have decided to accept a position at another company, and so I will no longer be the host of the Cognicast. Fear not, though, uh, the Cognicast will go on with the same great production staff that we've had all along. Um, and uh, it's going to be hosted by um, Karen Meyer uh, from time to time, Stuart Sierra from time to time, Tim Baldridge from time to time. Um, and I think they will all do a fantastic job. So um, I'm really actually pretty excited uh, to see some, some fresh perspectives that they'll bring and uh, looking really forward to, to continuing to listen to the show um, and the, the, the great things that they're going to do to carry it forward. So uh, after 114 episodes, it is uh, time for me to say goodbye as the host, uh, but the Cognitive Cast will continue. Uh, you will, of course, maybe still hear my voice a few times um, as we do have some episodes recorded. Uh, but uh, as, uh, as I put this down on tape, on virtual tape, on electronic tape, um, uh, this is, this is my, my final message to you. It's been really great uh, having all of you as listeners um, as I've been the host, but uh, I'm also um, looking forward to the fact that I know that you will continue to treat the, the new hosts of the show in the same fantastic way that you've, you've treated me. And as I said, the, the production team, you know, uh, Michael Parento and Russ Olson and uh, Damian Mack and, and Kim Foster are all going to continue to make the show. So um, I expect that uh, uh, this show will continue to be the, uh, the, the fantastic thing that I think we've, we've built up over the years. So um, just want to say thank you so much to everybody um, for, like I said, treating me so well as the host. But uh, time has come for me to move on. So I will, uh, I will leave it there and we will go on to episode 114 of the Cognicast. kick it off. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. Today is Thursday, October 27th in 2016, and this is the Cognicast. Uh, and today on the show, uh, we have a software engineer in the Advanced Threats Division of Cisco Systems, Paula Guerin. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thanks, Craig. Uh, so, you know, you and I have known each other for, for quite a long time. I think we may even have met at... Uh, at a closure meetup before I even started at, at Relevance way back when. So, you know, you and I have both been orbiting the, the same uh, portion of the closure world for, for quite some time. So it's great to finally have you on the show. Um, and I know you listen, actually, because you've mentioned it several times, which we really, really appreciate. So it's even even more excellent to have you here with us today. Well, at this point, I think the latest uh, episode was with uh, Misha and... Um, uh, Alan. Alan Dipert, yeah, and uh, I was just listening to them this morning. Well, awesome. Well, we like I say, we really appreciate that, and we're very, very glad to have you on because you're doing some interesting things. But we'll get to those in a minute. We do want to ask you the question that we ask everyone at the beginning of the show, which is to do with art. Of course, we always ask our guests to relate some experience of art, whatever that means to them. You know, people have said all sorts of interesting things, but it could be anything from a book you read to a painting you saw or whatever. I mean, uh, so. I imagine you've had a chance to think about this, and hopefully you have uh, something you'd like to share with us today. Oh, I have, but it's really more of a personal experience, and it, it uh, 
comes back to what you've often said about art. Um, and it's when I was about 12, I got taken by my parents to the Queensland Art Gallery. And in the entryway, there was this big uh, painting and it was like 40 feet long or something. And it was ugly. Uh, I cannot describe how awful this thing was. Uh, it was all browns and oranges and ochres and uh, had really disturbing imagery through it. Uh, had, it was a collage as well, had bits of newspaper up there and being um, put, put down and with red paint over the top of it. And as I'm walking along looking at this thing and just marvelling at how awful it was, the sticking out of the top of it was a preserved, partially decomposed head of a dead cat. And I, my understanding of art at that point, my appreciation of it, I suppose, was things like photorealism. But seeing something like this, which was extraordinarily abstract, um, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand how anyone could call this art. And a couple of months later, this was over the, the summer break, a couple of months later I was at high school and I spoke to our art teacher and uh, just in a conversation with her, I commented on this particular painting, which had really bothered me. And I was saying, you know, how is it that art is so all-encompassing that, it, you know, it's got awful things like this in it? I don't get that. And she explained to me, well, how did it make me feel? Did it make me feel sort of sickly and icky on the inside? And I almost imagined something spiky inside of me when I was when I was remembering this thing, almost a flavour. And um, yeah, yeah, definitely like that. Yes. And she said, "Well, that's what the artist wanted you to feel." And I think at that moment I got it. So um, I've, from then on, I've realised that art is about this form of communication which isn't about images and sounds or anything. It's about trying to convey an impression to another person. And then sometimes that impression isn't necessarily even something that the artists themselves thought of, but to inspire uh, feelings in other people. Um, you know, the more you can inspire, the more um, uh, love or hatred or disgust or um, feelings of passion and beauty, um, if what you produce can inspire feelings in others, then that's real art. And so I like to look for that sort of thing now whenever I'm experiencing anything in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I can just absolutely relate to the feeling that you're describing, and clearly this is something that happened to you as a child and it stuck with you, so it was, it was obviously a very strong impression. It's just... Uh... I mean, I think the artist would really take that as a as a compliment that it's that it's something that you know here you are and it's years later and you still remember the emotional associations with that work. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. In fact, I have no idea what the piece was. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, that's very cool. Um, uh, but I think we will we will turn from that as interesting as it is, and I'm sure we could discuss it um, quite a bit more to matters technical because uh, you've actually, so we, as usual, we're happy to talk about whatever uh, you would like to talk about today. However, 
Um, you had a talk accepted at the Conj, which is the thing that reminded me that we uh, needed to have you on the show. Like I said, you and I have spoken many times over the last, oh, most of a decade now uh, at various uh, closure and closure-related events. Um, but I saw your talk, and I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Paul is doing this thing, and it's actually something that uh, we here at Cognitech have, have many times said, boy, this is a this is a there's a certain shape of problem that comes up over and over again with to do with rules, and I'll let you explain your project more in a minute. But you're doing work there, and I think it makes it a great time to have you on and, and talk about uh, Naga, the the project that you um, uh, will be speaking on at the at the con that you've been working on uh, lately. But uh, maybe we can we can stop me babbling on about it and have you explain uh, what that is if you think it makes sense to talk about that project now. Yeah, sure. Um... I actually had this talk accepted at Closure West earlier this year, but I had some family issues come up and I wasn't able to make it. Um, but the project has progressed quite a bit since then, so uh, it may be better than I'm talking about it now anyway. So the idea of Naga is that it's a production rules engine, and this lets us build on data log a little differently to the way uh, something like Datomic talks about data log, which is uh, uh, how it pattern matches against the database and bring forth that, uh, that information by, you know, then joining and, and performing various transformations on it. It allows you to you know, pick up information through that process, but then use that to assert new information, which goes back into your database. And this can then be an iterative process, which uh, allows you to build out a whole lot of new information uh, based on your original set of information plus a whole set of rules about how that information would interrelate. It works really nicely with the concept of graph databases because graph databases allow you to describe things depending on how the, the terminology for the database works. You'll have like entity property value or subject predicate object. Um, but these are different ways of describing triple statement and whether it be the word uh, property or the word predicate, where um, these come back to that that branch of mathematics, which is predicate logic. And by working with predicate logic, this is exactly the sort of thing that we expect to get out of a rules engine. Um, we can declare uh, that certain things exist, and these end up being assertions in the database. And then we can talk about how uh, different entities relate to one another depending on their properties. A really simple example that I like to use is in a simplified model of a family because people typically know how families work. So, for instance, if you have two people who are siblings, then you know that they're going to share parents. So if person A has a parent and person A is a sibling of person B, then we know that person B will have that same parent. If the parent has a brother, then we know that both A and B are going to have an uncle. So we can look for these sorts of relationships uh, which are being described in the database. We can describe how, well, if I see this relationship, I can now infer these new relationships. And then we can start building it out because family relationships can be quite complex. And you can start figuring out, well, if I have an uncle, I can also uh, figure out what a nephew is. And then if I start adding gender, then I've got aunts and I've got uh, sisters and I've got, 
you know, lots of different sorts of relationships which will all start building out if I just describe a couple of relationships. So I can say one person has a brother, has a mother, the mother has a, a brother, and suddenly we know the gender of several of those people. We know uh, we've got inverse relationships because if uh, one person has a sibling, then uh, that sibling has a sibling of the first person. Uh, if somebody has a parent, then we know that they're also going to be a child, so these are inverse relationships. Uh, and we can expand the whole thing out. Uh, once we start getting a little more, we get cousins and we can figure out uh, all sorts of ancestry and third cousins twice removed and all sorts of things like that um, based on only a small amount of information to start with and a set of rules which builds on that. So Naga is a way of both allowing you to describe what those rules are and an engine to run those rules as efficiently as possible across your database. In this case, the, the style of database that I want to use is a graph store, uh, specifically taking advantage of the fact that we have these triple representations of well, what predicate logic calls an assertion. Because um, because I try to hide the storage then behind a protocol, this means that we've both got uh, an in-memory version that I've got locally that Naga's currently running on, but also uh, wrappers around other databases like Datomic, um, Sparkle stores, um, looking at OrientDB and things like this. And there's a little more to, to it than that, but is there sort of part of this that you'd like me to explore? Oh, well, so it's all very interesting. Um, I mean... So, yeah, so where to, where to even start? Um, so a couple things that come to my mind. Um, so first of all, just to make sure that I understand, you said it's a production rules database. That's right. My understanding of that is that that's describing that property you were talking about where you have some facts, some things that are merely asserted, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Craig has a brother named Kevin. And that's not, that's not derived information. That's something that the, the database is simply told. And then you have other information that, derives from that right like so we might say two things like you were giving an example of you know i have a brother kevin and uh my mother's name is maddie therefore my brother's mother's name is maddie but that that last fact that's that's what it refers to by production right it's the production rules is the thing where we're able to arrive at new information based on rules and existing information is that a correct description Yes, it is. Okay, great. So then, um, so then, I guess the the question that that leads me to is, um, so like I said, around here, I have definitely heard some pure meaning cognitech. I've heard some some people uh, saying, "Oh gosh, I ran into yet another problem where you know we wound up needing a rules system, a rules engine, and there are a bunch of choices out there." Um, I guess what I'm wondering, though, is aside from this example of families, which I think is a really good one for illustrating the point, but but like help me understand what sorts of problems um, that are more – I don't, don't want to say real world because I'm sure somebody has that problem in the real world, right? Like if you're writing Ancestry.com, you have that problem. <laughs> but like what are other concrete examples of problems that I can solve using a production rule system that – and maybe one of them will be something that's familiar to various of our listeners, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, production rule systems aren't the only way to approach this. Uh, sometimes we're looking at things where we want to uh, not assert that new data because maybe the data will explode. Um, and 
sometimes it's better to just describe these things as relationships. And so you end up doing a query against relationships and the query gets transformed in the background for you and it, you can then question your database and it will give you a solution to what you want, but you haven't had to uh, assert all of that new information. Sorry, that's something that you're saying that's something that Naga does or that's like... No, general, Naga does okay, not gotcha, do that, okay. but we do see that in other databases. Prolog will do that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, Prolog also lets you work backwards from some kinds of information and this is uh, this works forward only. But when it comes to, you know, practical applications, there are, like, for instance, the uh, when you're looking at an inventory system, I want to build a uh, an engine, and I know that the engine contains these components. And I then want to say, well, you know, the, this component, the carburetor, it's going to use these parts inside of it. I need a butterfly valve. I need, you know, lots of different parts and they're all going to have serial numbers etc and now what are all the parts that i needed to make the engine what's the overall budget on this and i might not have put all of that information directly in about the engine but it's all related and sometimes the system can get complex enough that it's not easy to simply say give me the breakdown of this engine because i might need to iterate over the database over and over until I've explored all possible, you know, breakdowns of the components uh, to know what the costing of the entire thing will be in terms of parts. Uh, how many engines am I able to build with the parts that I've got? Mm. Um, so inventory systems I know are something that NASA works with um, specifically uh, with this kind of uh, this kind of thing because their engines, for instance, are incredibly complex devices with uh, uh, massive breakdowns. Uh, I mean, when I say breakdown, that's a bad <laughs> term, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, uh, breaking the componentry down into mm -hmm. its parts, you want to be able to describe things at a simpler level in each part of it and then allow the computer to reconstruct the rest of um, you know, the relationships for your entire system. So having a nice, clear description of how things relate. You know, if this is in this component and that component is in this bigger component, then the small item was also in the bigger component. Um, these kind of relationships of uh, transitivity and, and the like are great to find up front because they can be expensive to calculate on the fly if you've got a lot of data to work across. And that's part of the issue with all of this as well, uh, while there are systems which can calculate these things on the fly, they often won't scale particularly well because you end up needing to uh, fill memory with, um, you know, with some of this information and uh, it can be difficult to get to that next step without having to calculate all of this stuff in between. Uh, but if you can, if you have some kind of scalable uh, data solution on disk or uh, in the cloud or something, then you can, disk is cheap. So you can build up a lot there. And so long as you can have talked to that data efficiently, then you can uh, you can do a lot of this work uh, relatively scalably. Um, and you can do a lot of the work up front so that later on when you need an answer to your question, you can get the answer very quickly. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Actually. I like the, I like that example that, that actually helps me because one of the things that I've learned uh, 
in the work that I've been doing over the last few years is how many problems are in fact graph shaped, <laughs> right? Like that's just a really natural shape for a lot of problems. You know, it's an inter interconnected world and being able to say this is true about that thing, this other thing is related to that thing. And I can see where things that are graph shaped, uh, and you mentioned graph databases as a natural complement to or integration point with or, you know, back end for Naga, however you want to put that. Um, I can see how this would be useful in that context. Did, did all that kind of hang together for you? Did it make sense? Absolutely. You're sort of triggering on a few words for me there because my background was, is in the semantic web. And I know that RDF got mentioned a couple of times when with the release of Datomic. Um, and then, do you know about my background with graph databases? Because I'm not sure if we've discussed that very much. Um, you know, I mean, I might know a little bit, but I, I don't think our listeners uh, all know. So go ahead and share with them. Sure. Well, uh, about 15 years ago now, a little, little more, um, we had this issue with the, actually with Xerox Corporation, the whole, th these things that led to uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, the fraud which was going on at various levels in, in organisations. And uh, when they when they were taken to court over it, there were massive paper trails that had to be trawled through. And uh, the company I was working for got some of this work to try to f make sense of the data that was coming through. And while trying to figure it out, well, my then boss, David Wood, was... Uh, uh, figuring that we needed to store all this metadata that we were extracting in some way. And he, he started looking across all the standards which were out there. And one of the ones which had just been released and was starting to get some headway at that point was the Resource Description Framework, or RDF. And that's a graph model of your data. And initially it was being touted as you know, specifically for metadata, although over time it became clear that you can store anything in it. And we tried to put it all into uh, various databases which were available to us at the time. And we, with the computing hardware that we had in our little company, we couldn't load up any more than oh, something like 80 triples per second, which, and we had millions, um, and we were getting more every week. And so we were, uh, we were simply unable to ingest the amount of data that we needed to. And so um, a colleague of mine, David Makepeace, and I, I wanted to mention him because he was a mentor to me throughout my career, uh, we came up with this idea that maybe because we knew that our data was in the shape of triples and it specifically could only hold certain data types in, in those three columns, then maybe we could optimise a system to hold that. And so we ended up building what was what ended up becoming one of the first uh, commercial RDF databases. Um, at that point, it was called um, uh, Tucana. And uh, a few years later, we released an open source version of it, Kawari, and then with various machinations, um, with the, the company finally being wound up, we uh, renamed the open source uh, system to Mulgara. And so I ended up working on this, this triple store database uh, for some years. And I worked on various parts of it in the query engine, uh, initially worked in the storage layer. And it became this really interesting intersection between the representation, the efficient representation of data on disk and 
the data model that was going to be um, applied to it, having to work at each layer of that system that brought in new insights on how it all fit together. You know, initially we needed to just put RDF in there, but then we needed some way to query it. We invented our own query language for it. And then it turned out that some of the other groups, which were also trying to build RDF databases, like Hewlett-Packard, and they created the Jenna system, which was open source. We we all decided to get together, and under the auspices of the W3C, World Wide Web Consortium, we uh, all joined to uh, create a committee to query these sorts of databases. And what came out of that was the Sparkle uh, system, which was what the Sparkle protocol and RDF query language. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Recursive. Yeah, exactly. And there are some there are some weird acronyms in there when it comes to these sorts of things because the the over RDF there's a there's a schema language, but then there's a much more complete concept than what a schema offers, and that's called an ontology. And that's the web ontology language, W O L. Uh, it's pronounced OWL. And the reason it's called OWL is because um, in Winnie the Pooh, um, the the character of OWL knew how to read and he could write his own name and he spelt it W-O-L. Mm-hmm. So uh, the web ontology language is OWL. I suppose then, it's not surprising that these various semantic uh, web technologies are themselves rather meta in their naming schemes. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, of course, all of these technologies were being defined uh, out of the W3C, and uh, apparently uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee had this vision up front uh, that web pages weren't simply supposed to be, um, you know, the be-all and end-all of the web because they were uh, really about documents that people read, but they're not really helping computers. The the main information, particularly early on, uh, that was embedded in a web page was about the presentation, and it also had information about links to other documents, but really the computer had no knowledge of what was going on in these, um, you know, in the pages. It didn't know what was being described. Uh, so Tim was thinking that, uh, what we really wanted was a web of information so that computers had some idea of um, not only the, the information that they held in their own documents, but also uh, how that information relates to other information and, you know, so not simply where to find other information, but what the information means and how those relationships occur. And in order to do that, RDF was invented specifically to address some of some of these issues. And this is why all of the identifiers in RDF are, uh, you are, well, now they're IRIs. Mm-hmm. They, they started out as URIs, of which URLs are a subset, but over time they've, uh, uh, they moved it up to internationalized resource identifiers. So IRIs, that's the latest standard. So we have these IRIs for identifying anything really, and uh, these are these are the nodes in your graph, and you know best practices will then have these IRIs refer to uh, information across the web found in databases or in other documents on on a website and things like this. And this all gets described using RDF, and uh, that 
you know, that's great that we have this description of, of how things connect and, and what relationships are. But then what do those relationships mean? So they created a schema which uh, describes like the domain and the range for relationships. So if I see this sort of relationship, then I know that it's referring to something that talks about a vehicle. And I, I see that sort of relationship that's going to be uh, talking about a person identifier and that kind of thing. Um, but that was very limited. So the more complete uh, descriptive system then goes on to describe relationships between relationships. And uh, this more complete concept, uh, which goes way beyond what, say, database schemas will normally expect, um, that was referred to as an ontology. And the, the system built up around that was the web ontology language, or OWL. And that was all semantically a lot higher level than where I'd been because I'd been really in the low level getting data on and off disk quickly, uh, how to optimise queries best to, to, to address this sort of thing. And I hadn't really considered those higher levels until one day the engineering manager turned to me and said, we need our support, can you do that? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll look up the standards um, and have a go at it. And as it turned out, it was much more complex than I had anticipated. And I said, well, how have other people done this? So we've got uh, two other open source projects out there working on this, uh, Sesame and Jenna. What did they do? And it turns out that they didn't have a complete solution either. And it was a, um, a postdoc research problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the time, I was doing my um, postgraduate physics because uh, I started as an electrical engineer and uh, uh, when the first quantum computing algorithms came out, I was uh, really inspired by this and I went back to university to do physics. And after graduating, getting an undergraduate degree there, I moved into postgraduate physics. And I was just finding that postgraduate physics and full-time work was uh, challenging. And then when I discovered that my full-time work was now something that other people around the world were researching, I I went to the university and said, do you mind if maybe I swap disciplines here and move into computer science, please? So I did. And uh, that was really good for teaching me how to do a lot of the research that I needed for this sort of problem. And at the time, because we were building over our database, um, I was after uh, scalable solutions, which there are some there are some good scalable approaches to a more complete system. But uh, the one that really stood out back at that point were rule systems. And so that was around 2004 that I started getting into rules and looking at it from the perspective of doing everything on this graph database. And uh, so back then I built one and it still works and it's still out in open source uh, that's built into Mulgara. And uh, initially the whole thing was configured using XML because that was... Well, <laughs> it wasn't XML. The whole thing was configured using RDF. And at that point, the uh, only officially recognized uh, serialization of RDF was in XML, um, which was a mistake. And no one should ever use XML to serialize RDF. But because it was official, I went with that. Um, and so I was configuring my rule system with RDF. And I, was, uh, I found that I was writing out my rules Using uh, using horn clauses, which is something that we find in data log or prolog, uh, 
and then I'll be uh, by hand converting them into uh, into the RDF structure that I needed that, to describe the rules that my system was configured with. And I thought one day, why am I doing this? Why not just um, write this out by, um, you know, why not write it, write the horn clauses in directly and write a parser that does that conversion for me? And, of course, I was going to need to find dependencies between the rules because if a yeah, rule produces um, statements that look like this, then I needed to have an efficient uh, mechanism for saying, well, I've now asserted these new statements, what are the, which rules should be run as a consequence of that? Um, because, you know, some rules don't care about those new statements, but others do. I was going through this process of doing so much by hand, and the more I did, the more I realized I could automate, including the entire process of uh, identifying where those dependencies were. And then once I, once I started finding where the dependencies were, I realized that I was duplicating what a, uh, a ready system would be doing. Uh, ready, I'm sorry, because a lot of people don't know. Um, ready is the uh, fundamental algorithm for rule systems, whereby um, it minimizes the amount of work done between uh, the initial assertion of data and how often rules need to be run to make sure that that data has propagated entirely throughout the system. Uh, and it does this by remembering data as it flows through, and it's a whole network of, uh, of memory nodes which build up the data that comes through. And as I'm working with this, it became clear that, the, um, uh, that instead of memory nodes, I was using lookups in these indexes on triples, which are really efficiently indexed. Um, and so it was really fast to simply do a, a quick lookup of a pattern. And I, I essentially had just duplicated um, the, what this particular node in a, in a ready network would end up doing. And um, because everything was already pre-indexed, it meant that the network had already been built for me and so I got a lot of um, a lot of leverage out of uh, the way that these graph databases uh, would index triples, or most of them, the way they index triples, and then could um, leverage this using um, using the standard query infrastructure uh, into creating the, the sorts of rule outcomes that, that the Ready network was expecting. And then looking for changes in here, so rather than saying, well, a new assertion has come into the system and it's going to end up uh, creating a, um, uh, you know, flowing through the network and building, you know, adding into these nodes in the network and because they've been modified, we now need to see whether, whether or not that rule fires. Well, now I can do an efficient count on a particular pattern that's been indexed uh, a particular pattern which has a, uh, an associated index with it and those counts were very efficient to, to do as well and um, the, using the standard querying infrastructure uh, all of this just sort of started falling out and it turned out that many of the labels in the research literature started applying when I, when I approached this like doing a count on, uh, on this pattern when applied to an index uh, is what we call semi-naive reasoning. And the reason for that is that we're presuming that we're creating new data all the time 
And that means that if we see a change in the count on the data, that means that we have uh, something new asserted. Um, I'm rambling now. No, no, you're, you're, you're right. This, this is good, actually. You're taking us through the history of kind of how you arrived at where Naga is today, and it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. So please continue. Well, I, so I built the whole thing uh, for the Mulgara database, and it runs, and I, uh, my parser read something that looked like horn clauses, but instead of taking um, standard atoms, it was looking for um, Q names, which is a way of representing a URI or IRA um, as a namespace and label pair with separated by a colon. Um, because almost all URIs that I was using, you know, followed that particular pattern. Um, and I found, I didn't know a lot of Prolog at that point, but once I started learning some Prolog, I tried typing it in and it just ran. Um, now there's things like Prolog, though there are things that you can put into Prolog which require backward chaining, where you can't simply say, if A and B then C, Sometimes you might have a B and a C and you can work backwards to say, well, I must have had an A. And a forward chaining rule system can't do those backward sorts of things. Prolog can. Uh, so Prolog has greater capability, but it also has less scalability. Anyway, it was, uh, it, it was really great to have built this. And once I had the rule system going, I, I started plugging stuff into it. Um, and... You know, the, because there are lots of people who are using the database and they wanted to um, apply these uh, schemas and ontologies that they'd already built. And I said, well, what happens if I put this in? And my first, first thing that came out was a whole lot of data, which I thought was just um, random crap and that I had a bug in the system and I needed to uh, find out what had gone wrong. And I started tracing it through to, to figure out where did this new data come from? And as I traced it through, I discovered that, no, that data was actually all correct. And I had never seen through to the consequences of some of the, um, some of the rules which were a part of this vocabulary. Hmm. And that was possibly one of the coolest experiences in my computing career when I discovered that I had built something that was capable of discovering things, not simply due to scale, but it was capable of discover reasoning out answers that I hadn't considered. And that was what got me interested in computers as a kid. You know, though I had this notion that computers could think, that they could, um, uh, they could figure out things that we can't figure out. But as I got older, I realized, oh, no, it's just really fast at working through a whole lot of information. And, yeah, that's what is happening here, but there are so many layers of abstraction and semantics which have been applied that now that we've gone through uh, reasoning through all of this bulk of information with these rules, the consequences that come out are non-intuitive and can be beyond what you were expecting. And to see new information like this uh, just come out of it. For me, it was kind of magical and it really inspired me to keep doing it. Um, and it is difficult sometimes to take that step back. And I do like working with Al for this reason because it lifts me up so many layers semantically away from the story. And I, I sometimes have to swap up and down this whole stack. Uh, 
And one of the I mean, one of the things that brought me all the way back down to the bottom again, actually, was when Datomic came out. Um, when we first built Mulgara, so it was Tukana and then it was Kawari and now it's Mulgara and still Mulgara. But when we first built it, it um, uh, we were trying to find the best way to store these triples on disk. And everyone in the office who was interested in these sorts of things had a go over a weekend of trying to store these things, in, uh, index these things onto disk. Um, and we were, you know, we benchmarked it to see how quickly we could get data on and off. And at the end of the weekend, uh, turned out that the youngest kid in the office who'd only been out of university for a few months had the winner. And he built it using AVL trees. Um, AVL trees have this really interesting property. Uh, they may be a little slower to read because they're a binary tree, but they're super fast to write because it's an, uh, any update on the tree is an 01 operation. And uh, so you, you might have to do lots of reading to find everything, the, to identify what you're looking for. But um, when you finally do a write to the tree, it's just an 01, you know, uh, there's only a couple of write operations and you're done. And the tree always stays balanced. Mm. Uh, and this means that AVL trees are actually really, really fast for writing information. And... Um, uh, we've been using this now for several years, and while uh, shallower trees are, uh, have real benefits for reading, we've um, still been, you know, getting a lot of benefit out of ADL trees uh, because usually the bottleneck for people has been in loading data. Uh, I'm looking at fractal trees after seeing uh, the talk on them at uh, Strange Loop. Um, because that definitely looks like it's optimized for writing as well. But the reason I mentioned the tree structures is that while we were looking at this, uh, one morning on the Linux kernel mailing list, we saw this post on the release of the Tux2 file system. And that file system, tell me if you've heard this before, uh, was built from a tree where whenever you made a modification, you never modified the tree. Instead, you would write out um, uh, new nodes, which then did structural sharing with the original tree, and it would only need to duplicate from a particular point in the tree up to the root, which would only be you know a couple of branch, uh, a couple of levels deep. And so, any modifications to the uh, to the file system ended up uh, just being a few new writes, and you never had to. Uh, what is it? Uh, you never needed to uh, modify anything in the file system that, that existed. And yeah, that sounds when you want, Yeah, <laughs> and then when you wanted to, uh, when you were finished with the write, you did this commit operation, which simply moved from the old root of the tree to the new root of the tree, and then the old root of the tree, you know, didn't exist anymore. And we're talking about uh, 2001 and so we uh, you then went through from the root and you, you had to identify those nodes which were no longer in use and you'd sweep them up so that they could be reused but um, uh, but what it meant was that the uh, the file system would be guaranteed to be in a consistent state at all times 
And we thought this was a wonderful idea. And so Mulgara is built on that concept. Um, now, we put an awful lot of effort into finding nodes which were no longer being used in trees and sweeping them up in the background and, uh, and then making them available for reuse later. And then years and years later, I started saying, well, we have this mantra, this is cheap. Why are we sweeping these things up? Why not just leave it around? Uh, because it's taking up so much effort to, um, to identify this stuff and we had to do all this bookkeeping. Let's throw away the bookkeeping. We'll just leave it on disk and we can just build our uh, build it up. And if we ever need to uh, save space, then we'll, you know, read from the, the index and just rewrite it into a new index. And that can be done as an overnight operation or something. Um, and then Datomic came out and Rich, when he was presenting it, essentially presented the same structure. Only then he said, and you can query all the old versions. And, and the little light went off for me. I was saying, oh, my goodness, I've got all the old versions there, but I don't have any API to access them. And uh, so I've been, I was sort of working since then into creating the APIs to access all of this old data. But Datomic was a very natural fit for me. Uh, because it was almost exactly the same principles in architecture uh, of many of the things that um, that I've been looking at for many years already. So you know, when Datomic came out, it was it was something that I naturally just wanted to try to apply these things to as well. And I'd heard comments from people, and I won't name names. Uh, talking about how uh, Datomic wasn't going to be really compatible with RDF because RDF has the whole open world model and Datomic doesn't. And that, at that basic uh, storage layer, that doesn't actually really apply. It's always closed world. You've got what you've asserted on disk and you don't have what you haven't asserted on disk. And, you know, when I say on disk, this is an abstraction, of course, for where the data is really being stored. It could be in React or, or something like this. But um, uh, you, yeah, uh, the, the whole storage mechanism is simply whether or not these uh, these triples, or in fact, they're not triples because we every database I know of actually has extra information on each assertion. Um, but we call them triples because we, we typically have that subject predicate object or entity property value. Um, we uh, All of these statements on disk, uh, they either exist or they don't exist. And then we apply semantics at some higher layer as to you know how that works. So the first thing I did was to build a, um, uh, a wrapper around Datomic to try to load my RDF into. And that's still floating around called Kiara. And because I loved the recursive acronyms, that one was uh, Kiara is not a sorry Kiara is a recursive acronym. <laughs> Good one. That's the, that's awesome. Yeah, that worked quite nicely as well because it turns out that keywords. Um, well, there, there was an issue with this, but um, keywords and uh, queue names uh, kind of looked analogous to one another uh, because they had a namespace and a label. Um, the main issue there is that uh, with um, with 
large enough, um, yeah, a large enough RDF document, you might end up with millions of URLs. And if I try to map that into millions of keywords, then they will get interned in um, in Datomic, and that was uh, that has a scalability issue. And the whole point of this is the scale. So um, Kiara has some issues there that need to be addressed, but. Um, uh, I was finding that the general model was working really well for me. Working with RDF, working with the semantic web, all of these things brought me to the US in, what, 2006. And then a couple of years later, I um, uh, I moved to a non-profit who had me working on the database. And after the financial crisis, they were running short on funding and uh, asked if I could find something else. And they gave me good lead time to do that because I was on a visa. Um and I happened to start at Revolitics, which is where Alex Miller was working. And uh, at that point, I was sick to death of RDF. No, sorry, not RDF. I was sick to death of Java. And all of my Java code was starting to look extraordinarily functional. Um, I was copying many of the things that I'd been learning about from uh, Common Lisp and Ruby and writing libraries in Mulgara to try to do that kind of thing. Um, everything was being, you know, done in these anonymous inner classes and functions. Uh, but, uh, and it was uh, becoming – Java lets you do this, but it's messy. <laughs> so we um, – uh, I'd been moving towards Scala at that point, and I started – a uh, at Revolitics and uh, the boss there, the, the, the owner of the company said, uh, well, do you know Clojure? And I said, well, i am heard it's a functional language and I believe it's a Lisp, isn't it? And he said, yeah, you need to learn Clojure. So I picked up uh, Stu Holloway's book and got through that and then started working in Clojure and really don't like using many other languages now. <laughs> um, so what they had me do at Revolitics was, strangely enough, build a rules engine in Clojure, which I did and um, learned a lot in that process. Uh, it was my first real Clojure project, so there were things which I could have done better, and I always intended to. And unfortunately, Revolitics um, eventually moved out of semantic web technology. They got into big data. Um and all of the work that I was doing in big data ended up, we stored all of the metadata for that in Datomic. And that was my job. And so I, uh, I became really familiar with Datomic doing that. Um, and then what well, we went, the, that company got sold to Teradata and uh, they wrapped up that division last year. So now I'm, uh, I decided I was really I, I wanted to do another rule system, this time open source, and I wanted to abstract it away from the databases which I've been connecting it to in the past uh, because I was now starting to see this uh, common element across all of the databases, the graph databases that I've been working in. And I came up with the concept which is now Naga. And uh, initially I called it Canonus, which is uh, Greek for rules. Um, but then early this year, I started at Cisco, and they were very interested in my semantic web background and in my rule system background. 
And then I had a discussion with my manager about what I was doing uh, with Canonas. And he got really interested and he said, look, I'd like you to do this on company time for Cisco. And um, we had this theme uh, with the, the Vance Hertz division of all of these, uh, uh, all of our software, which has been uh, uh, named after characters in Avatar, the cartoon series. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had to rename it and I, I picked the, uh, what is it, the, the polar bear dog in um uh, in what is it, the uh, Cora? Oh the, yeah, Legends of Cora, I think it Legends is. Legends of Cora, yeah. So that that's where the name Naga comes from. And I, in order to write rules, I wanted a, a quick, easy way to do it. So I wrote a parser using Parsertron uh, that Nate Young uh, put together a few years ago. I used to work with Nate at Revolutics. Um and that's uh, so the language there, which is essentially a re-implementation of Prolog, um, uh, I called that Pabu, and that was the little fire ferret. Um, anyway, it all I was putting it together. I wanted to build it over uh, Datomic, but uh, the decision was made that we wanted to have something in-house that wasn't relying on another database, and sure, I could leave my protocol in place to talk to other databases, but could I please build something in memory myself? And I thought, but there are all these databases out there and it's all this functionality that I don't want to have to re-implement. But um, I was asked to do so and I was actually, despite singing the praises of Clojure for many years, I was surprised just how quickly a query engine with an optimizer can be built in Clojure, basically under a week with one person which really, that, that was a new level for me. Um, it doesn't do everything, but it does handle uh, it, it does handle the inner joins, it does handle filtering, it does do projection, it does, um, uh, it does have a query optimizer, so it figures out the elements of the, the query. And incidentally, queries uh, syntactically are identical to datomic queries because I've been using that syntax now for some years. Um, it will reorder the query to be some level of optimization, um, unless you ask it not to. And it does all of this, and all of the code to do that was by myself in under a week. And um, uh, and I, I just that's a call out to closure again because I just could not have done that in any other language. I want I want to jump in there for a second because there's this there's this query language, and I'm trying to understand how that relates to the rules. I mean, are you expressing the rules in terms of query or the, or the rules produce data and then you do query to extract the information you need or what's the, what's the relationship there? Sure. Well, I need, so a rule might be, you know, going with the family uh, example. Uh, we might say uh, if A has a, a parent B and B has a brother C, then A has an uncle C. Is that? Yep, I'm with you. Yep. Okay. Uh, so we might query that out as, you know, uh, select A and C, and we're going to know that A is related to C through uncle. Select A and C where um, A parent B and then B brother C. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's the select where that you might use in, um, in Datomic. And that involves, so what's, what's needed there is the lookup of those relationships where, you know, uh, A parent B, that's a, that's a lookup in the, in an index. And then B brother C is another lookup in an index. And we need to be able to, uh, join those results according to that, uh, to the B that we found. And then we need to project that result down to just the A and C. And so that projection is what the select clause does. And we then want that to be reasserted into the database uh, as triples. And we're going to be asserting A, uncle, C as our assertion. So the syntax that I have for a rule, if you're calling, if you're calling this in um, as an API, which is what I was anticipating to start with for Naga, um, that syntax uses where clauses which look identical to a um, uh, to the where clause of a um, a datomic query, um, and it uses a keyword of colon dash uh, to separate that from a, a um, from the production uh, in the same way that Prolog does, and then the production is a triple like uh, of the same pattern that you might use in the where clause. Um, when I do it with data, uh, when I'm doing it in uh, the, the prologue-like language that I called Pabu, um, that ends up being, you know, structured quite differently, but it ends up being translated into the same thing. Um, now, internally, the API for storage needs you to be able to handle a query, which is uh, given these patterns, which I'm going to join, and these filters. Um, then uh, I want to see a projection of just these variables. <clears throat> and that's a, a really minor tweak to turn that into a datomic query. Um, but it also applies to the in-memory version that we needed to, uh, that I, I was asked to implement with it. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, the, mm -hmm. the query engine that you wrote is how you implement the... Um uh, some aspect of the rules, but the surface area of Naga is for the, the, the user facing stuff is still uh, the, the Pabu language, if I have that correct. Yeah. Yeah. So Pabu is basically a. So I'm in the process of doing another language because we've got more to it than, than, what, than what I've described. Um, but Pabu is a re implementation of, you know, a subset of Prolog. So I've taken Prolog code and I've plugged it into Naga and it just runs it fine. Uh, and I've taken Naga programs and I've put them into Prolog and they pop out just the same way. Um, the, the difference is that with Prolog, I have to ask, you know, what did you get here? Whereas in Naga, it generates it all and ends up in the database. Um, the database doesn't at the moment have any front-facing um, uh Interface for, for just executing queries on, you need to use an API. And I'm thinking of uh, wrapping a, a web interface around that just to, you know, provide easy access for it. But um, the, uh, uh, yeah, it, the, 
sorry. That's right. Uh, the, all the functional bits are there. And I mean, okay. the rules engine takes what looks like relatively standard queries and their outcomes uh, and it deconstructs them. It figures out what those patterns were. It, can, it figures out what the interdependencies are between the rules. It then figures out that if I'm going to run this rule, which other rules could possibly have been triggered, and then it'll it'll check to see if the part of the rule that was uh, dependent on the outcome of this one that's just run, um, if that um, if anything changed in relation to that, and if it did, then okay, this rule is now a candidate for being run, mm -hmm. and it. Uh, uh, yeah, and we can move forward with that sort of thing. And that actually allows us to have uh, negations in our rules, not where we're saying, oh, I want to remove these statements, but it allows us to say, uh, I'm looking for these statements, but not where these statements exist. Mm -hmm. And a standard, um, uh, a standard rule data log system won't let you do that because they're typically looking for um, the entire outcome of all once all the patterns have been joined across your data, did we see a change in the number of elements that we have? You can't look for uh, a change in the elements that you had because that could be something which is, uh, you know, scaled beyond what you can remember. Uh, but you can remember how large that result set was. And uh, typically data log, you know, has this restriction on it where you can't say, I'm looking for data without this because sometimes you'll assert new data and then um, when you assert other data which, uh, which applies to the filter, it means we've got new things which have come in and we can actually keep our count not changing or even going down. And then the whole mechanism of uh, trying to spot changes in the database based on how big the resolution of a uh, particular pattern is against an index, um, <clears throat> that breaks down. But by doing, oh, sorry, the resolution of the entire query against, uh, against the database, if we're basing it on counts there, then that can break down. But if we're looking, if we're looking for just particular patterns against the, um, uh, the database, and then that's much more efficient for looking up in an index and for counting, um, and which is part of what I was trying to get at in the, the, the first few iterations of, of what I was doing here. Um, does that but, always does yeah. that always work? I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think. Like, there are certain cases where it doesn't, and I try to filter that sort of thing out. Um, the the reason why we see restrictions on languages like Datalog, they'll say, oh, we do this and this and this, just like Prolog, but you're not allowed to do that. And you look at it and you say, why aren't I allowed to do this? Well, it often comes back to reasons like, uh, well, all of the implementations do it by counting this result and comparing this number to that number. And everybody's done it that way, so we, we you know, have to put this restriction on the language. Um, and there are certain decisions that I've made in various parts uh, which allow for more flexibility. Uh, it'd be great to allow for even more, but then I'd need to start using memory to, uh, to record certain things which are happening, and I'm not doing that at this point. Um, so there are restrictions on, on how far you can go with the language, but certainly in terms of what exists and what doesn't exist, 
Uh, yeah, it, it allows for negation, whereas normal data log doesn't. Can I, uh, sorry, can I clarify uh, something? Real quick? We, sure. Just, I don't think everybody's aware of this, but because uh, uh, I think some of our listeners, at least, might might think data log is is Datomic's database language, and in fact, it's yeah. a whole family of of languages. So, like the things that you're talking about that are um, properties of data log are not necessarily properties of Datomic's data log. For example, things are on negation. I just wanted to, to clarify that because yeah. I know when I first came to it, I was like, oh, data log, that's how Datomic queries. Well, it's actually been around since the 70s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And so, data log is essentially a subset of Prolog um, aimed at databases, hence the name. Mm hmm. Cool. Uh, Prolog being programmable logic. Well, now this is database logic, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's based on querying and assertions, which is exactly what I'm doing here. Mm. Um, and the the thing is that back then everything was based on these much more flexible relational database tables and the like, and it had performance issues and all sorts of things. And as there was a lot of research done on it in those uh, back in the 70s, but they kind of moved away from it and much more towards what SQL can do. And SQL does have a, um, a relationship to data log. But, um, you know, SQL doesn't allow for things like uh, looping, mm -hmm. uh, and data log does. Right. So I can... Uh, you know, I'm able to say, like, I can declare something to be transitive and, uh, you know, and that's a, a very simple rule where I say A property B and then B property C, therefore A property C. And Yeah, like uh, in your inventory system where you were saying, show me all the things that are subcomponents yeah, yeah. of this component, right? So yeah. transitivity is something which uh, which is a very simple rule and it's a really common rule that, that you see in these sorts of systems. I want to make sure that we um, maybe kind of so we've we've done a great job of covering past. I think we've 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 uh, hit on uh, many of the kind of you know present uh, uh, features and status of, of Naga, but maybe we could just briefly make sure we cover future, like what you have in mind, and then uh, and then we can kind of start to loop back and see if there's anything else we should hit and, and, and bring it down from there. Well, the, the future for it, um, one of the things that we have is a, uh, a set of modules of uh, JSON importing and exporting. Uh, so the data that we're processing at Cisco, which is about um, identifying uh, network events and what's going on inside machines um, based on uh, software, which is, you know, moved across the network. Uh, and we're looking for uh, threats to the system, uh, so malware. And uh, as we accumulate this information, it's all represented as JSON. And so the import mechanism turns all the JSON into a graph. And it turns it into a graph in uh, using a, a, a schema that is relevant to what we're trying to do with the rules engine. And then once rules run over it, we can then extract everything back out of the graph as JSON again. Um, now, the Pablo language isn't really optimized for that sort of thing, and it works, but it's uh, we, we have these various levels of indirection because we're not referring necessarily to um, from one entity directly to another entity. Instead, we're referring uh, to an entity by a label that an entity may contain, and uh, this creates 
you know, indirection when we're doing it with Pabu and also some knowledge of how the JSON was encoded into the graph. So building a new rule language which will handle that sort of thing and make it much more intuitive. Um, I'm trying to expand on the, the uh, number of databases that I can wrap on. Um, I haven't finished doing the Daytonic one at the moment, for instance, and I want to move straight into Sparkle. Uh, hopefully I'll have Daytonic done before the conj. Uh, it shouldn't be very much because I've uh, I've got half of it done now. Um, I definitely want to add more features into the rules engine itself uh, so that I can handle some of these issues around neg negation or others uh, calling out to external sources. Um, production rules right now only uh, assert new data into the graph. We also want to send signals out uh, to... Uh, uh, on a messaging API so that you can say uh, trigger events to occur somewhere else in your system. Um, so there's, there's a lot more work to, to come out of this and uh, I'm definitely having fun with it. <laughs> is it. Is it ready for, I mean, would you, if I said I have, I have a production system, I'm considering using it, would you, would you advise me to do that or to wait? Um, it will definitely handle certain sorts of things quite well already. Um, so if you have a, a limited amount of data and you have a rule, uh, a set of rules, whether written in Pabu or you want to uh, program directly against the API, uh, it will definitely load that data into memory, run against it and give you all of the new information out again. Um, if you, your requirements uh you know, look like that, then yeah, it's it's ready right now. Um, the sort of requirements that I have are a little uh, little beyond that, um, and I'm not quite there yet. Like I said, I wanted to be able to talk to Datomic, or at least, you know, uh, I want that persistent scalability in the background. But um, uh, in terms of doing logic for forward chaining logic across your data, then it, it does that quite well uh, right now. Okay. Oh, great. It sounds like definitely one to keep an eye on either as a possible use in a, in a project where those requirements are met or um, for, uh, for future use uh, when you expand it out to meet any other requirements. Very, very cool. Um, awesome. Well, that is a really excellent uh, overview of Naga. And, and, and as we uh, mentioned briefly at the beginning of the show, you will be talking about this at the Closure Conj coming up in, boy, just about a month now, getting close. Well, I don't need to now. I've told you everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure people will still very much enjoy your talk. And as we were as we were discussing kind of offline before the show, you'll be able to have, uh, you know, pictures and, and, and wave your hands and all that good stuff. So I'm sure the talk will be well worth uh, watching. I was already waving my hands while I was talking now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but people will be able to see you do that on the video, and I'm sure that will help eno enormously. Although your explanation was quite clear for me, so I appreciate that. There um, are some extra... Inter I don't, I'm not going to mention now, but there are some extra interactions of uh, ontologies with the rule system, which are quite interesting in terms of uh, complexity that comes out of it. Well, cool. Well, I mean, you know, we, and we can definitely... Uh, have you back on as you as you move the thing forward and maybe check in and whatever makes sense and and see where you've gotten to. But uh, I do want to leave a little bit of time here um, as we start to wind down um, for anything else that uh, I mean, obviously, we didn't even talk about Gherkin. I don't think we make sense to talk about that. That's been a while. But, uh, you know, that's a favorite of mine. People can go look up what that is online. But uh, 
Um, just, well, I have to look at Alan Dyput's talk, and it's really a shame that the um, uh, that that video doesn't capture the laughter that was going on in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody believed it was real I to know. start with. This thing is Alan. So just to, not to tease people, very, very briefly, this is a lisp that is implemented in Bash, and, and, and Alan presented this a few years ago, and people literally thought he was joking. I wasn't sure myself, but you've actually put a bunch of work in it. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that today, but if there's anything else that you wanted to share before we uh, before we wind down, that's cool. If not, like well, I said... Well, there's one we... comment that I wanted to put out there because I've been running it, uh, into it a little bit uh, lately. Um, I've been getting involved with women who code up in D.C., uh, which is a, uh, an organization which uh, supports and promotes women working in technology industry. And there's a lot of people who have uh, come into industry sort of sideways through like boot camps or um, uh, lots of different uh, backgrounds in uh, into coding. And working with some of these people, there are some really, really bright women there. And what I'm discovering is that they're often uh, going up for job interviews and because of their background, uh, you know, through a boot camp or through learning through some other mechanism, they're not being given the look in that I think they probably deserve. And I'm just sort of, uh, I'm still figuring this one out, but I'm thinking that uh, the interview process that we have is very much um, sell yourself to the person who's interviewing you. And yet that has very little to do with the kind of job that people need to do when they finally show up at the, in the workplace and uh, and sit down to start writing code or, or designing or whatever. And, you know, there's this big disconnect between how we're selecting people to work and the, um, and the people who would be best working in our company or really have something valuable to offer our company and their ability to, uh, to slot into that interview process. And, um, uh, I know there's been some research into how women will present and people of different cultures will present in interviews and how this doesn't necessarily um, lead to the people who may be able to offer the most, uh, you know, necessarily getting the job. Um, but it's still something which is unclear to me as to what the best approach is. But uh, I'd like anyone who's looking to hire anybody at the moment uh, to consider what their requirements are and uh, really look at a person, not necessarily how they uh, how they look in the interview, how confident they are, how well they can sell themselves, but to, you know, really consider what they may need for their job because uh, we're seeing a lot of research coming out which shows that uh, if you have greater diversity in your workplace, then you will have a greater return on investment for your company. And, uh, you know, uh, it would also be giving a lot of people who deserve opportunities uh, the you know, the chance that they that they really should be getting. So, yeah, thanks for that a lot. I mean, um, I, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a white male. Um, so I you know, I'm on I have a certain perspective, but my daughter, my older daughter says she wants to be a programmer. I mean, who knows if this if that will survive her her teen years, but she is neither male nor arguably white. Um, her mother is Chinese. So, you know, number of dimensions there in which she's not the um, 
the stereotypical uh, uh, candidates. So I'm really, really interested. You know, at least at a minimum, as her father in, in the in the the way that our uh, industry that she's interested in um, uh, treats people um, outside the you know the kind of the white male I don't know stereotype. That's the right word. So so I guess my question is, uh, given that uh, one of the things that we do at Cognitech, our interview process is. Um, and maybe interview is the wrong word, but our selection process includes what I think to be a substantial emphasis on actually working together. Um, you know, we have multiple hours where uh, the candidate and one of our employees sit together and work on real problems. Like I will, I will, uh, for instance, one of the things I might do is if I'm talking to someone on a Friday, I say, well, this is, this is a problem that I'm solving. Let's spend two hours together actually making progress, not setting up situations where I'm trying to determine some specific aspect of their knowledge, but really can you know this person and I sit together and progress this actual technical problem in the, in the exact same way that we would be asking them to do, uh, you know, should we decide to work together? So is that the sort of thing that, in your opinion, is going to be more appropriate than the, the kind of interview, answer these questions and, and, and convince me in a sales perspective that you should work for us? It definitely is an improvement, but there are also issues which show up with that. Um, one, of the, one of the things which tends to come out there is that uh, there's a bias towards uh, enjoying working with people who are like yourself. And if you're finding that maybe you're making progress, but you're being challenged a lot by another person, are you necessarily, now you may, but, you know, is every interviewer necessarily going to uh, appreciate that development process? And it may be that it was a better development process, even though it wasn't uh, as comfortable. Um, the, you know, a lot of the processes that we have now, even that sort of thing, tends to bias towards hiring people who are already like us. And, you know, because you say, well, I want to work with this sort of person, or with, you know, whoever we employ, and I want to make sure that, you know, that they enjoy the sorts of things that I enjoy. And um, that's not, you know, necessarily true across the board, but there's definitely, uh, I'm seeing a lot of uh, that sort of bias showing up all the time. Uh, with people making statements like that, you know, is this a, the sort of person that I would want to share a drink with at, at the end of work on a Friday? Um, and you know, we can end up with uh, with unintended biases coming through when we have that sort of approach. Um, like I said earlier, I don't necessarily have the solutions here, but I really would like to think that people could. Um, be aware that they have this bias for wanting to work with people like themselves and to, you know, try to look a little further afield because um, it's not comfortable. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to want to look for people like myself as well, but I, um, you know, some of the most productive interactions I've ever had were with people who challenged me to the point of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really great perspective. I really appreciate you uh, you sharing that. And and as so often happens, <laughs> we have managed to wander into a topic that by itself would be excellent advice, 
And yet here I am left with the question <laughs> that I that I ask all of our guests at the end of the show, which is, uh, do you have any other advice, I suppose I should put it, that you would like to share with our audience? Um, I have a motto that I go by, and I wouldn't necessarily provide it as advice for others, but it certainly works for me. And it's, it's problematic in, in and of itself because it's a little judgmental in some ways. But I heard this phrase once, only the mediocre person is always at their best. Hmm. And the thing is that I think everybody has a capacity for, for greatness on occasion. Um, and so, you know, declaring that, that we have mediocre people isn't necessarily a, a very nice thing. But I do like it in that it both, you know, inspires me to, you know, have those bursts where I do something really great, but also it allows me to be a little more kind to myself when I feel that I, you know, I haven't produced something or I'm not being very productive right now or I've just made a really stupid mistake um, and, you know, what kind of idiot does this make me? Um, just remembering that phrase reminds me that, you know, I am allowed to be not at my best sometimes because when I am at my best, maybe, maybe I'll be really, really good. Um, and I think it also goes the other way around. Uh, every person out there, including myself, especially myself, um, makes horrible mistakes on occasion. And if we can acknowledge that it can be, it can allow us greater compassion for ourselves when we make those mistakes and greater compassion for the people around us when they make those mistakes because everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely true for me. I like that a lot. That's really great. Well, Paula, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on the show with us today. Really enjoyed the discussion uh, of Naga um, and your perspective on the other things we talked about. Um, it's just good stuff. I mean, I think you did a great job of explaining it, and it's clear we're going to check back in with you at some point uh, to see where Naga's gotten to, the other interesting things that you've done, because as I said, there's at least, at least, and I know there's more, but there's at least one other interesting thing that you've done that we didn't touch on at all. So um, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, this was great. Great time. Always good to talk to you. And uh, But I think we will wrap it up there. Uh, great show. Thanks again. We will thank our audience. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Paula Guerin on Twitter at Qual. That's Q-U-O-L-L. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.